So off we go. July the 29th, 2018, lecture discussion number 31 on the book of Joel. Hmm. Last Sunday, number 30, for those keeping score at home, that would be the Internet. That was a meager endeavor to provide closure to some of the questions that have assembled as we've trudged along here for 30 lectures in Joel. And the accurate metaphor that would accommodate that would be the character of Pigpen from Charles Schultz's Peanuts cartoon. Or if you live with the system that I have, um, have you ever had a hardwood floor and dogs at the simultaneously? Um, they make a little cool machine now that sits in the corner and you sweep the dog hair to it and you push the button and it sucks it all up. I don't have one of those. <laughs> but I have the dog hair. So that's kind of what I see as the analogy to what we've done. As we've moved along through Joel, we have a hardwood floor covered with dog hair and I'm trying to clean some of it up today. So either of those uh, would be applicable. Now, whether it's uh, noticeable or was noticeable or not, usually not noticeable, progress has been made over the last 30 weeks, 31 weeks, counting today, uh, much to the great delight of the professional religious person, which is me. And I should inject that I haven't always been called a professional religious person. Uh, I should inject that in its original form, the exact title was Professional Esteemed Religious Person. But for obvious reasons, that was acronymically expedient to eliminate, shorten it to this form, though the initial pronunciation prevails for reasons to remain undivulged. Now, that was a very funny joke. And I knew the Internet would, of course, seize upon it. I wasn't so sure of those of you. Anyway, where was I? Progress. We've made progress. We have closure, sort of. Neither means what it usually means. In cliffside, closure is not necessarily closure. And you know that, and there's a good reason for it, because answers to biblical questions always result in progenies, in descendancies, or descendants, or descendant questions. And the ratios are numbing. There's, every time you answer a question and you bring closure to something, you have a tremendous amount of information that is uh, coming forth from it. So I am want to say, as you know, pack a lunch when you're reading the Bible. Scripture cannot be mastered. It's this quality, it's this characteristics that... Uh, this begatting, if you will, of uncountable questions that come out of the Bible that's intentionally embedded in the Bible by its author. God did this on purpose. I get complaints about it all the time. We never answer all the questions. Do you know why? You can't answer all the questions. And if you can't find the questions, then what's happening to you? You're not reading it. God did this for obvious reasons. Among those, there's many reasons, but just, just one of them. I'll give you one of the, the tertiary ones. It's to isolate his Bible, your Bible, his word, from all the counterfeits. They don't have this. God has used human instruments to, re, to compile and record some of his infinite thoughts. Not all of them. Some of them, his thoughts are infinite. 
He is the infinite creator. He, he had them do it at his direction. And so what we have is an extraordinary gift. And all that to say, expect to be buried in complex questions. If it were otherwise, it would not be scripture you're reading. And to repeat, that is why it is simple to identify the man-contrived forgeries that saturate the world. I can read any of those counterfeits, those forgeries. It takes me less than a minute to figure out that it is not God. Because of the simplicity of it, the disoriented, the chaos that it is, the unconnected elements that are there. The Bible that you have is intricately connected. And that's what you should be. You should be thrilled by that. But it makes it kind of difficult sometimes to figure out what's going on. But that's not a problem either. That's what he wants us to do. So, though an occasional answer is accomplished, yay, cause for celebration, have chicken, prepare to be buried by the aftermath of questions that flow from that one answer you've got. Catherine is attempting to write a monograph on Genesis 3. It's exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. You just can't leave anything out. But there's so much of it, you can't put everything in. That is exactly how the Bible is. That's how you can have faith that it is God himself speaking to you through the human instruments that he, at his direction, inspired. So again, you get an occasional answer. Hooray! But then say, okay, what's next? Thousands and thousands of questions if you're doing it right it is how it is, it is how it is designed by the creator who designed us and the universe, uh, the ecology, the cosmology. Everything that he put in his creation is, is replicated in his word. That's how you can figure out who is the author of it. The best example of this, in my opinion, is Nicodemus, John 3. Get rid of professional religious person. John 3. Nicodemus comes to God. He doesn't know it's God, but he knows that Christ is somebody special, and he assumes correctly that Christ is the Messiah. So he had one answer. And Nicodemus, as I tried to say, did not yet know that the one who was the Messiah was also the one God in the flesh. He didn't know that. But he knew this had to be somebody that God had sent. He didn't know it was God himself. This is the God-man. This is Jesus' God. But Nicodemus figured out a little piece of that. That Jesus' God is the Messiah. And to be fair to Nicodemus, that was extraordinary reasoning. He had to study the whole, the, almost the entirety of the Old Testament, look at what Christ was doing, and find out how all of those things he was doing was fitting with the Old Testament. And as soon as he did that, he recognized this is the Messiah. It's fantastic what he did. That's why he takes the burial spices and puts them in the tomb ahead of the women. Because he knows what's coming next. He knows he's got to have a tomb, and him and Joseph get the burial spices, and the burial spices are in there before the women even made them. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you. But he comes to Christ, and he says, I know you're the Messiah. And Christ does what? How does Christ respond? How does the author of your book, the actual, the Word of God, Christ is the Word of God. This is a piece of the thoughts of the words of God. 
the ones he selected for us. How does God respond to Nicodemus, John 3, 3 through 21? He literally, figuratively, simultaneously suffocates Nicodemus. It's amazing. Nicodemus comes with one answer and just gets wiped out. He says, you are the teacher of Israel. Do you not know? You're the teacher, the highest level Bible scholar in all of Jewish life. Nicodemus. And he starts giving him things he doesn't know. The principle of born again, which is Genesis 3. Born of water and the spirit. Born of flesh. He says, flesh is flesh, spirit is spirit. Then Christ says to him, we speak, we know, we have seen our witness. What's he giving him now? The triunity of God. Nicodemus did not know that. Most Jews today do not know that God is a triune Godhead. Then he gave him ascended and descended Proverbs 30, verse 4. He says he brings in the brazen serpent or the bronze serpent and Moses. So now you have all the typology of Moses as well as this mystery of the bronze serpent. He says that he must be lifted up. Well, we always assume that's crucifixion and that would be correct. But we also need to know that he ascends. So the brazen serpent is ascended as well as lifted up. And a crucifixion form, he's also, ascension is part of this. Why must, just ask this question, why must Christ ascend? Everyone will always answer the very simplest way. What is that way? Not everyone, most. Okay, everyone, I was right. They will say, Christ must ascend so the Holy Spirit can come. Okay, I'll grant that. But you think that's an answer? I'm three years old. What am I going to ask next? Why? Why is it necessary for Christ to ascend so the Holy Spirit can come? Is it they don't like each other? This is the triune Godhead you're talking about. So what does that mean and why is that so? Light has come into the world, Christ says. That's, of course, is Genesis 1. And Christ goes on to tell Nicodemus that men love the darkness. Again, Genesis 1. Evil hates the light, does not come to the light. He who does the truth comes to the light. And Christ, of course, calls himself the light of life. John 8, 12, Genesis 1, 3. The point is, yea, a point. If Christ would do this to the teacher of Israel, what are the chances that we, are exempted from this. Nil. Zero. None. Back to zero. Is zero infinite? Is it infinite zero? Should we always have infinity and zero side by side? Where did the concept of zero come from? Who thought of zero? When did they think of zero? What are negative numbers for? Where am I? I bring this up again, all of this stuff, because Sherry from Indiana. We think Sherry's from Indiana. We don't know for sure where Sherry is. Hi, Sherry. And she does move about. She has, uh, she's in a motor home. What, is, what, do you, what does she call that? The, the, uh, oh, I can't remember. It's a great term, though. The, 
the, the hillbilly caravan or something, she calls it. And they all travel along together because uh, I think her, um, her husband works on pipeline systems. But anyway, she wrote it, um, to ask about the constant and the non-constant speed of light. So those of you who are interested in the constant and the non-constant speed of light, Sherry is with you. She wanted to know whether there is a wide range of speed at which light travels. Or is there just one speed, as Einstein says, for all observers? And obviously, if there are non-constant speeds of light, and also a constant speed of light, who gets to see the non-constant speeds of light, and who sees the constant speed of light? Or do we see the non-constant speeds of light and think it's the constant speed of light? That's what Sherry is asking. That's why she's um, writing to us, frankly. The consequences, if this is true, if there is a non-constant speed of light, the consequences to Einstein's uh, positions on relativity are immense. They're, they're destroying it. And, I, and maybe you remember from a couple weeks ago, Lecture 29, Lord Jim. I don't know if all of you were here for that, but Lord Jim had a question for um, DeGrasse Tyson on the existence of an absolute vacuum. Lord Jim said to him, do you think, do you think that there is such a thing as an absolute vacuum? Because if there is not an absolute vacuum, then light does not travel in an absolute vacuum. Does that make sense? So what is in the absolute vacuum? And how does that affect the speed of light? We know that light goes through mediums and is affected by it. Shine light through uh, gravitational fields, for example, are through uh, water. So is there really an existence of an absolute vacuum? As the speed of light is 299,792,458 meters per second in a vacuum. If there is no vacuum, well, then a problem is presented. And that's something that Sherry wants to know about. And that's why she wrote and asked the question. Let's just deal with that for a second. For example, electromagnetic force. The electromagnetic force is um, ubiquitous. At least it is seemed to be so. Is electromagnetic force being applied to the vacuum? Does light contain electromagnetic energy when it is moving? I bring these kinds of things up because one of the first principles as, a, as an aspiring electrical physics student, uh, I was confronted with impedance. Words that are important to me to this day. Not resistance, but impedance. And I was also counter-electromotive force because locomotives are made by General Motors. See, I give you more acronyms. Um, General Motors, the, the, the department that makes locomotives is called EMD, or was called back in the day, oh my goodness, 45 years ago when I started this. Oh my goodness. How old is he? This is the electromotive division of General Motors, and they are doing that because, as you have been told by me and never heard me, uh, locomotives are, are basically an electric train. They have a generation, generation device, uh, usually diesel, almost universally diesel. At first, though, they were steam devices, mechanical. Now they are, of course, electrical. There are big motors down below, and a generator provides 
the voltage and amperage necessary to rotate the axles and pinion system and the motors uh, uh, move the, the wheels, if you will. Wheels go round and round. Isn't that a song? Okay. One of the first things that I had to recognize and understand is counter-electromotive force. Uh, eventually, it became understandable as impedance to me, but you see, I have a motor. Counter-electromotive force is the voltage that opposes the voltage that's coming into a motor. Let me explain that better. I have a generator, and the generator is producing electrical current and electrical voltage, and it is put inside the motor system, if you will, connected to the motor, and it causes the motor to begin to rotate. I usually, in my day, had capacitor start motors. You don't care about that. Now they have offset stator windings, but that came later for me, because I'm way back 50 years ago when they just finished shoveling coal. Gosh, I'm old. But, so I have a generator sending current and voltage into a motor. The motor begins to rotate. Well, generation is the rotation of an armature in a stator winding, which is a magnetic field. Stay with me. I know what I'm doing here, and it's really awful. So I have a generator over here that is run by a gas engine and it is rotating an armature in a stator winding system and that magnetic impact in the stator winding has usually a battery that initiates its magnetic system and so the spinning of this armature and in our days we had brushes that's a long story now they don't causes generation so if I rotate a wire inside of a magnetic field I will induce current flow and voltage in that wire. Does that make any sense at all? So now I have a generator run by a gas engine and it's throwing electricity and voltage and amperage into a motor. Well, that motor is something spinning inside of a magnetic field. So what is it doing? While it's spinning itself, it's also doing what? It's producing electromotive force. It's producing a counter-electromotive force or a counter or opposing voltage simultaneously. How does this apply to light? Because way back 50 years ago, we figured out this applied to light. That's why I asked, does light have an electromotive force or electromagnetic force with it while it's moving through a vacuum, if such a thing as a vacuum really exists? So the voltage opposes the voltage, if you will. If you want to think of it that way, I have the voltage from the generator and the voltage from the motor, and I have the current being in opposition as well, and that, of course, produces an impedance or a resistance, and that resistance keeps that motor from running away and burning up. So it's very handy for it to exist. So the faster it goes, the more impedance it produces, the more impedance it produces, the more opposition it has, the less current is now able to get in it because the resistance has increased. And that is what we call impedance versus resistance. I interchange the words, but they're different. Don't concern yourself if you find this completely disinteresting. That means you're normal. That's good for you to be disinterested. Only a very, very, very few people care about these things. And they usually work for railroads or they're in the Navy. So that's right. There is a railroad worker here who's very young relative to me. And he cannot be normal. In fact, tell the people you actually liked what I just said. Okay. 
proof that he is not normal. Do not talk to him. Do not let your children be like him in any way. Anyway, the point is, yay, another point, is light is traveling through an electromagnetic medium, yes or no? Is there electromagnetic energy in this supposed vacuum? And does that electromagnetic energy, in fact, violate the principle of a vacuum? Because if I have electromagnetic energy in that vacuum, and the light is traveling in that vacuum, and the light has electromagnetic energy while it's, it's producing its own, then I have motor and generator systems, don't I? Just on a much grander scale, much more sophisticated scale. And if any of my premise is correct, does the electromagnetic medium disqualify this concept of a vacuum? In other words, how much impedance is being exerted on the light? How much resistance? If I have none, well then, Neil deGrasse Tyson is correct and we have light traveling through a vacuum at, at 299 million meters per second approximately. But how much do I have? How much is some? And then what about gravity? Does gravity affect light? Does it provide resistance? Do I actually have light traveling in a vacuum anywhere? That was Lord Jim's question. Somebody wrote, I have no idea who it is. I hadn't seen them before, but they wrote on a YouTube uh, video of this that Supper Dave, if he truly exists, put up. And he said, Yay, Lord Jim. And boy, that is absolutely correct. Yay, Lord Jim. All of this gets you to the question of this. Is there such a thing as non-relativistic physics? And the answer is yes. In other words, you will see relativity or relativistic physics is almost now a religious order. You do not disagree with relativistic uh, theories now, because if you do, you will be ostracized. You can Anything that in any way seems to discredit it is not allowed. It is forbidden to speak uh, anything uh, uh, that is op- in opposition to the beloved Einstein. But there is a resistance movement. Ha, 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 that's a joke. And Sherry wants to know about that. In other words, are there explanations of time, space, and light that correspond with your Bible and do not bow at the altar of Einstein? Obviously, I would tend towards those that correspond to Scripture as I hold the literal literality or the literalness and the perfectivity of Scripture to be dear. I think this Bible is perfect in its original form. I believe that passionately, and I think the explanations for creation absolutely true. So anything I believe scientifically, I would want to reconcile with the one who made it. I would want his opinion before I would want uh, uh, an accounting clerk from Germany. Now, I know that is blasphemy, and I will um, be, uh, what's the word, targeted for dis, um, for not being properly subservient. But I am not a scientist, so therefore they can't affect me. 
I would hate to be in the business and say what I just said because I would be ostracized, ridiculed. It seems logical to me that the one who created the physical reality would best describe it. I think that is a big duh. So I want to know what he said. I want to see what the one who instituted time says time is. The one who is the absolute observer of time, who is infinite, uh, he would be the one to consult about time. I would like to read what he thinks time is for, and gravity, and energy, and matter, and space, and mathematics, and language, and light, all of those. So that's what I have done to reach the conclusions I have. But many, again, humanity, especially as you know, uh, disagree. They do not have that perspective. They do not come to the one who is the light of life. They love the darkness. So you have two sides again. Are you looking for the light or are you looking for the darkness? And Sherry wishes to discuss the radiation continuum model light postulate. You'll know it as RCM. Radiation continuum model, all that means is that radiation, whether it's electromagnetic or whether it is gravitational or whether it is some kind of, of, of influence in the continuum or in space, has, a, has an effect on light. So it's called the radiation continuum model light postulate. I don't call it that. I call it Psalms 104. One and two. I'll write the rest of these down. You could call it if you wished. Isaiah 44, 24, 45, 12, 51, 13. When I found that many, many, many years ago, obviously, I said, okay, there's my answer. Psalm 104, 1 through 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who covers yourself with light as a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heaven and stretched them out. He says that he is taking his creation and he is stretching it out. Remember this lecture from a long time ago? I hope a few of you might remember. It's quite a while back and I sought to emphasize the importance of this. I really pounded away at it. Uh, Supper Dave, actually, if he exists, put it on Sermon Audio and paid $5 and got a thousand people to watch it or listen to it. I didn't do it as, as I didn't emphasize it as much as I, I'm going to today. But he is telling us that he's pulling on his creation and he's doing it like it's a sheet of elastic membrane. And you see this also in Einstein's positioning as well. He sees uh, the his space as a membrane and God will back him up. How about that? Einstein has God on his side in this one little area. But God says, I am stretching it out. And when they found out that the, earth, the universe was expanding, it was a dynamic event. It stunned them. Ultimately, again, this is the Doppler effect, red and blue light. So I want to know how this will affect the speed of light. If light is traveling in a membrane that is being spread out, what's the next obvious question? 
At what speed is he stretching it out? What is the velocity of the stretching compared to the velocity of the light? And how is the velocity of the light being impacted by the stretching of the universe? For today, just for today, this is all this is for Sherry. So all who hate Sherry can now raise your hands. Let the record show, Sherry. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> She's been here. Do you remember her when she came? Yes, everyone remembers you, Sherry. That's probably not good news either. She'll write me. She wrote me last week saying, oh, she put it on uh, uh, BookTube, right? Yeah, she put it on book, BookTube face and said, Lori is going to kill you, she wrote. <laughs> For today, try to imagine an automobile, and I will use my amazing artistic capabilities, traveling on a road. That is amazing, I know. Just the money I could be making. I'm, actually, this is, I'm going this way. Here I am. Traveling in that direction. And while I'm traveling in that direction, somebody oops, grabs the road and starts to stretch it out while my car is on it. I'm doing 100 miles an hour just because I like round numbers. And the guy stretching the road is stretching the road out at 1,000 miles per hour. How is the car affected by that? Moving, uh, traveling on a moving road. The car at a velocity of the moving of the road is at a velocity exceeding the velocity of the car. Now I want you to imagine ten cars. That's a Volkswagen. Here's another really. Rotten little jelly. You notice all the cars today look like jelly beans? That's what they look like. Jelly beans. And then they tell you how cool they are. Now, that's some serious advertising. When I was a kid, I had a Ford Mustang. It was the worst mistake my dad ever made. And I thought that was a nice car. I had a Chevelle, 1966 Chevelle. I had a 1965 uh, uh, Chrysler Newport. I had a Pontiac 455 rocket. Now they tell me that I should really be impressed with a jelly bean shaped car. It's not going to happen. But that's what they make. A bunch of jelly beans and they drive them and they make you go. They got a bunch of rats coming out of the jelly bean telling you that's, that's what I want to be. A rat coming out of a jelly bean. Anyway, I digress. Imagine I got 15 cars here or 20 cars. They all left the starting light. There's a starting light, and they all left at different intervals, and they're all at spread across the membrane while they're being spread out, and they're all traveling 100 miles an hour. Ten cars, 100 cars, racing against each other at different speeds, leaving the starting lines at different times, intervals, therefore, between drivers on a road that is accelerating. What is the velocity of each vehicle? Sounds like a story problem, doesn't it? That's what we're talking about here. 
I want you to replace the cars with photons of light and mix in Einstein's concept that the speed of light is the same for all observers and see if that will work. And this is what Sherry wants to investigate. And by the way, if that isn't enough, I received a letter from a gentleman named Gabriel. You might find it interesting. Well, I hope I can find it. Where is he? There he is. Right here. Let me read it. Checking in from Gabriel. Warm greetings, beautiful downtown cliffside. I know that because I have never written before, one of the most immediate of the obvious questions is whether I was weird before I came to Cliffside or not. So the, the influence of Bill the Fast is just all over the world now. So I won't make you wait for the answer. I actually explained, uh, explained it by how I arrived, so two introductory items can be addressed at once. I searched Sermon Audio for quantum physics. How many sermons are on Sermon Audio? Millions and millions, isn't there? So he went to Sermon Audio and he typed in quantum physics. How many do you think showed up? Yeah, here he is. I searched Sermon Audio for quantum physics. Obvious conclusion is obvious, as they say. I'm writing to express the joy I have in Christ over you, Cliffside having been blessed through being taught of the knowledge of God, as having discovered brothers and sisters whom I never knew I had. He's identifying himself as like you, isn't he? Yes, he is. Uh-oh. <laughs> I've listened to the Roman study twice. Woo, let the record show, Gabriel. Tremendous sympathy. The manting from the emanating, I guess, from the congregation here. And am more or less caught up at this time, at the time of writing this, with the ongoing look into Joel. I thank God for you all, and there are a few things I have been meaning to mention to Steve through the years. And that's the thing that amazes me the most. I hear from somebody who has been listening for years. Which I think he'll be happy to know that I'll now list, because I figure he likes lists. <laughs> Number one, I am a mathematician, a physicist, and an artist by training and some semblance of trade, and a believer. Number two, it's been my habit since, <laughs> this just killed me, it's been my habit since youth, and I wish Jane were here, to write mine on styrofoam cups in order to distinguish them from cups not uh, cups belonging to others. Sometimes I write, not yours. Bill, how many times have I written mine on all my sodas on the job site? Thousands of times. This is a relative of mine. That was my first thought. I wonder where he came from. And then, but he says, then it goes on to say this. I read that and I went, this is amazing. The guy said, genius, obviously. He would write mine on his Diet Coke can. <laughs> Number three, Pastor Steve shares a birthday with my mother. Definitive proof. I have long made the assumption that she in her youth was involved rather famously in Mexico with something having to do with mayonnaise. 
Thus the nation celebrates in honor of her birthday. I could only assume that he also had something to do with this joyous condiment event. So I'm wondering if perhaps you know her. Her name is Karen. (laughs) It'll be. Although it is number four. Though it is not Samson's song, here's a link to a song about Samson. I think you appreciate the poetry of his lyrics. I've yet to do that. I promise I'll do it before I come back. Five, the mean free path of an energetic particle is defined as the as the statistically predicted distance it can travel before interacting with another particle. In every Big Bang cosmological model, there is by necessity a period of time in the early universe during which the density of the cosmos is such that the mean free path of a photon is less than its shortest possible wavelength. This time lasts from the beginning to a definite point in time, all called T. We may define T as the time at which, as the universe expands, its density reaches a point that the mean free path of a photon becomes non-zero. Under the assumption of uniform expansion, this density level is reached simultaneously across all that is. In other words, the expanding universe is at first too dense for a photon to travel freely. Or at all. There is no such thing as light as a physicist understands it, because, just to help you here, the photons can't move. Then at a definable, definite time of T, the universe expands to the point that, uh, where am I? That the photons can move for the first time in the history of creation. At time T, let there be light and there is light. What happens next according to any big bang model is that light becomes separated from the darkness. Pretty cool, right? I was taught this in my totally secular university astrophysics 201 class. All that hype about university professors all being out to destroy Christians and make them atheists by science isn't necessarily true in my experience. Though I can't deny there is a great force in such places that, with such will. Six is C3PO. Seven, in keeping with how you decided to stop saying certain phrases so much, such as, by the way... I noticed a certain phrase you often say that you don't happen to be trying not to say and wanting to help you in any small way that I could. I mean now to either ruin or enhance that phrase for you, your free choice. By telling you what what phrase I so often say when I hear you say your phrase that you so often say. You say, so far so good. And I do. And there's an obvious reply. Not very far Not very good. (laughs) Number eight, this space uh, reserved for future commentary. That's the same as this page intentionally left blank. If you work for the government, and I have, you'll see that all the time. Because if they leave it blank, somebody assumes that there's something missing. So they write on the blank page, this page intentionally left blank. That is your government at work. He goes on to say, I don't want to drag on too long, but I do have a question I'd like to close with because I know you guys like questions, and I actually think it's relevant to what we've been studying recently. It's about time, and it's mathy. Double win. God set two great lights in the skies for times and seasons, the sun and the moon. That's Joel 3, right? Joel 3.15, Joel 2.10, Joel 2.31. 
These lights are periodic in their motion, but the periodicity of the one is not a divisor of the other. The lunar calendar does not evenly divide the solar calendar. A lunar cycle is not an integer number of of apparent solar days. The ratio of a solar year to a lunar year is not a whole number. See the thousand questions? Why? Why two measures of time that don't coincide? What is God telling us by a great reflected light governing the night that isn't in lockstep with a great light that governs the day, yet is ruled by and by the earth through gravity and its own velocity? How is this showing us and teaching us of Christ? Fantastic question. The sun and the moon are fantastic pictures of him in some obvious ways. But what about the facet of their giving us two different time measures that don't line up? I was hoping you might work some of this in, if you find the searching out of it edifying. Probably later I'll remember more things I wanted to mention and probably possibly think of new things as well. Again, I thank God for you and remember you in my prayers that his mercy shine on you and that you and all you who share with you in these broadcasts will continue to grow richly in the knowledge of God. And I know that God will do this for us because it is his will, because uh, knowing him is eternal life. That is as typical a uh, cliffside letter as I could find. And it's amazing to me. If Gabriel's letter does not impart to you the general nature, the essentiality of the vast Internet audience, nothing else is going to. This is who they are. To say Gabriel is representative is to conclude the obvious. And I'm constantly amazed and just amazed at the level of thoughtfulness that is universal to this digital congregation. Hi, digital congregation and uh, this is uh, I got to repeat this this is why we cannot ever let them vote or visit us in any way they can't find out what we're really like okay what is Gabriel really asking besides the infinite gravity explosion that's what he's talking about he's seeing he's trying to put the infinite gravity explosion the big bang cosmological model which replaced quasi-steady-state universe. They used to say the universe has always been, it's never not been there. The Big Bang came along and said, no, there's an origin to the universe. Oops, here we go. There's an origin to time. Oops, here we go. We have an infinite gravity situation, and that infinite gravity exposes. Infinity, oh, we have infinity. Here we are again. Well, the, the, the quasi, the, the steady state people, the universe panicked. They said, you are letting the Christians win. But the Big Bang has prevailed because the evidence is overwhelming. So he's talking about an infinite gravity explosion. So we have an infinite gravity and it, the resultant of the explosion is a division of light from darkness, which I must add to my list of things to compli- uh, contemplate. So that's how he began. But his interest in the origin of the calendar is the one that I'll address here right now. That extends naturally to the origin of time. Gabriel rightly notes that the lunar calendar is not reconcilable with the solar calendar. I have to put this on the board. Or the Gregorian calendar. We have all had all kinds of calendars out there. You have to keep them all straight. A solar year is 365.2422 days. That's a solar year. And 0.2422 is not 0.25, or one-fourth of a day. I see you. I'm moving fast now. But it's close. 2422 is almost one-fourth of a day. Would you agree? But it's not quite. 
So every four years, February 29th, to account for this imprecision, they add a day, right? Because of its 365.2422. And then, of course, every now and then, you need an eight-year interval between four years because the .2422 is not exactly .25. Does that make sense? You can use your phones right now. Feel free. Use your phone. Research the last time we had eight years between leap, leap days, if you will, leap years. And when are leap years? They have, they have them on specific years. You should know that. They figured it out mathematically, you'd expect. Lunar calendars are different, as you know. Solar calendars, the orbit of the Earth, lunar around the sun. Lunar calendars are based on cycles of the moons or phases. And the partitions, if you wish to subscribe to what I call the uh, carpenter tape measure approach, you have a, 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 that's a good methodology, but it serves as a vigil aid, I guess. It would be the best way to approach it. You got a sixteenth moon, an eighth moon, a quarter, or three sixteenth moon, a quarter moon, three eighths of a moon, a half a moon. And you can see the moon go through its phases. You can watch it do that. And phases are more traditional. There's seven phases of the moon, not counting the two dark phases. The point being, wow, points abounding. The moon appears out of darkness, reveals itself eventually as a full moon, and then diminishes or returns to darkness. And that is a lunar month. What he is saying is the lunar month does not correspond with the solar year. And God put the sun and the moon together. Why don't they reconcile in nice, clean, neat ways? Because they don't. A lunar month is not to be confused with a lunar orbit. Lunar orbit is how going around the Earth. Lunar month is the phases of the moon. So a lunar month, the duration between successive new moon phases, is not 29.53059 days. It's not that. If you think it is, you would be wrong. That is 29 days, 12 hours, and 44 minutes. And it's not that. 29 days, 12 hours, and 44 minutes is the mean or the average lunar month. But the lunar months are all different. The time of a lunar month is varies as much as 13 hours for the longest lunar month relative to the shorter, shortest lunar month. And just for fun, a lunar orbit is 27.3 days. So this is what he's, Gabriel, wants us to talk about. Because this is very important. And I can look at you all and see how important it actually is to you. Unbelievably important. My job is to make it important. How far have we gone? Probably not good. A lunar year is 354 days. Obviously not 365 days. There is 11 days missing or 11 day uh, discrepancy. Why 11 days? Why isn't this a 30 day and a 360 day system? You would think I'd have a 30 day lunar month and I'd have a 360 day solar year. 
And now there I have this beautiful 12 whole number that Gabriel is after. Why don't I have that? I don't have that. I've got 365.2422 and I've got 29.53059. Mean. That seems like a mess. Who designed this system? And 354 days. 11 days again. Not accounted for. The question then is obvious, isn't it? Where is Carlin? Carlin put that wonderful thing. This is what I think, or what my baby thinks when I see, what is the, what's the obvious question? That was unbelievably good. A drooling baby. The obvious question is obvious. Is this antediluvian or post-diluvian? Yeah. Is this evidence of entropy? Is this the second law of thermodynamics? If 360 and 30 seem to be logical and symmetrical, which they are, what is this 365.2422 and 29.53059? Or to rephrase this, is 365.2422 and 29.53059 the original structure? Do you think this is the original structure? Or is this the original structure? So what happens then? What's the next obvious question? If you conclude that this does not seem to be original, if you decide that that's original, that has a Jewish historical element to it, then what happened? How did the 365.2422 or the 29.5530 blah, 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 how did that happen? Probably the better question, what exactly precipitated this distortion? Assuming, of course, that the 360 and the 30 are the archetype or the prototype. Eventually, this discussion leads to the tilt and the list of the Earth's axis. Is the Earth, in, was it, did God design the Earth to have a list to it, a listing? No, that's not real estate, that is a boat leaning. Did God intend it for that? Is that the initial design as well? Repeat once again, what event could account for this dramatic change if, in fact, the 36030 is the original calendar or clock structure? And that's why I raised the antediluvian and the postdiluvian. That's pre flood and post flood. Is the catastrophic flood, and I think the catastrophic flood would appear as the only circumstance or incident with the capacity to alter the original clock? are the axis of the earth. As Gabriel points out, if the premise of the flood is the root of this, then what happens next? If that's your answer, what's your problem? You have a cornucopia of questions. And they're all over the table. Foremost would be, if the countdown clock is no longer accurate, here's my favorite question. Does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody really care? Couldn't help myself, sorry, not really fake sorry. How old was Christ when he began his public ministry? Do you know, do you know, do you know? Luke 3.23, it says that he was about 30 years. About? He's about 30 years old? Why is he about 30? Can't we know how old he is? Doesn't seem that it should be a mystery. When does age begin? Birth or conception? Because if it's conception, 
It's bad news for me. I wanted that conception view when I needed a car license. And that's when I was after that. That other license, too, that was 18 at the time. No, not drafted. How long was his ministry, Christ's ministry? It says he was about 30 years when he began his ministry. How long did he minister? Three years. So he's about 33 and something years old. Most people think he's 33 and about a third. You'll see that commonly. Jesus Christ, the Ancient of Days, Infinite God, the I Am, Creator of Life, chooses to give up his life because nothing can take it from him. See the definition of omnipotence. He chooses to give up his life at 33, about 33 years of age. 33. Cut off is at 33. Daniel 9.26 tells us that. And therefore we cannot yet see all things that that are put under Christ. Hebrews 2.8, really fast. Hebrews 2.8 and 2.9, routinely butchered by the church. To find a doctrinally sound exposition of Hebrews 2.8 through 9, almost impossible. Be suspicious. 99% of them degrade the Godhood of Christ. 33. Most numerical scholars are shocked, surprised by this 33. Why not 36? Three is triune deity. Twelve are triune deity. That's the divine seal. Seven is spiritual perfection. Ten is ranking perfection or ordinal perfection. Twelve is governmental perfection, the perfect king. Why isn't it three times twelve? We'd get 36. That'd be great. We don't. We get 33. We don't get three times seven. We don't get three times ten. We don't get three times twelve. Christ chooses three times what? You can do this. Three times what? Eleven. Yay. Why did Christ choose eleven? Eleven is the undoing of ten, the numerologists say. The adding to it and the falling short of twelve. Nebuchadnezzar destroys Jerusalem in eleven years, breaks it apart. Eleven is very uncommon in Scripture. When it is found, it's always connected to ruin. Why would Christ pick ruin? Does Christ know how old he is? Why does Christ choose 33? What is this 354? I can't even get my pen apart. I've spent way too much time right now on the sun and the moon, at least it's the predominant theme of the book of Joel. At least it is the predominant theme of the book of Joel. I wanted to return to the infinite visibility, divisibility of time. I asked last week, when God looks at this, doesn't he? I know I'm hurrying. We decided that an instant was a thousand milliseconds. I'm sorry. Yes, we decided that an instant was a millisecond. I take that back. So one one thousandth of a second. I said it wrong. And God would look at me, which is take me, for one second. And take a thousand pictures. And I asked you, does he see motion? I asked you if you see motion. So here I am. I'm going to stand still for one second. There. I did it. I have a second back there. I'll do it again. Did it again. I'm amazing. Three times, four times I stood still for a second. I'm now going to give you a 
thousand pictures of me standing still for a second. You have a thousand of them. thousand frames per second. You're looking at all of them. Can you see any difference between frame number one and frame number two? They're a millisecond apart. How about frame number one and frame number ten? Can you see motion? Can you see movement? Can you see change? And I ask you, can God see change? Could you see the difference between frame one and frame 1,000? Because I was doing great. Did I move in that time? You could not see movement. Everyone conceded last week that you could not see movement. So I asked this, does God see movement? Does he see motion? See, when God looks at the instance, he looks at the at the thousand milliseconds, if you will, or the one millisecond changes, he sees it. He sees motion, doesn't he? We don't see motion. How come? When God looks upon the instance, just imagine he's fixed on you. He sees every single cell that you have. How much are those cells moving in that one second? He sees your breath coming out of your mouth. Because your breath is, has weight and has volume. Ask any trumpet player. He sees the particulates that are in your breath. The saliva never sit in the front row. He sees the quantum level of you. So he sees the change in your heart. The change in your lungs. The capacity difference in that millisecond. He sees the wetness of your skin. He sees everything all the way down to the microscopic level. When he evaluates photograph number one and photograph number 250, 250 milliseconds at a time, how much change did he see? How much motion is contained happening in your body? And he sees it all. He cannot not see it all. Motion, therefore, when assessed, in my view, because I think you will eventually figure out that the amount of motion that you produce in a second is extraordinarily, mathematically unknowable. That's amazing testimony. Motion, when assessed properly, is an extraordinary testimony of the omniscience of the Creator. Motion is evidence, it's proof of his infinity by placing everything by everything I mean everything the microscopic the quantum level by seeing sending everything in motion God has given us a magnificent attestation of his reasoning his purposes motion is change over time life is demonstrated by motion over time thoughts are manifested by physical events over time time is this corroboration this verification of, of his attention to his creation every step we take every move we make he's watching did it again, didn't I? That was worth it, I know. But he is. And we don't even know the movements that are in us. The changes. The whole creation does this. And it screams out his attributes. His invisible attributes, Romans 1.20. Time is invisible. Mathematics invisible. Infinity is invisible. Thoughts are invisible. Belief is invisible. Once you figure that out, you're on your way to wisdom. Let us 
in this madness.